Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live from Iowa, and I am super excited to catch up with our longtime friend, Brandon Busby, who is the Associate Vice Chancellor for Advancement with a specific focus on global networks, which we'll talk more about, at the University of Denver. Welcome, Brandon. Thanks, Brent. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. So we have known each other for some time, dating back to your work at UC San Diego. But what we have never discussed is what led you to attend UC San Diego in the first place. I would like to go back in time to Brandon, junior year of high school. Who was that guy? What was he into? What was he considering with his own college landscape? Uh, and what led you to UC San Diego? Sure. Um... So uh, Brandon, junior year of high school, had grand aspirations to be in uh, government in some capacity. <clears throat> and so um, my uh, college application strategy was uh, find myself in the center of any um, politics that I could get into. And so applied in DC to a number of universities and then also within California up to Davis and Sacramento. Um, and, you know, it's in one of those instances of fate, you can click as many boxes as you can when the applications are digital. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I might as well click the San Diego box as well. I don't want to be close to home, but, you know, just in case. Uh, so the East Coast didn't get into schools on the East Coast, and it was between going to UC Davis or going to UC San Diego. And when I went to the campuses, I grew up in a rural part of San Diego. Um, it does not look like the beach or the ocean that, that most people think about. Um, it actually looks and feels a lot more like Davis. And so I went up to visit Davis, and I'm like, I feel closer to home in Davis than, you know, in, in the, off the cliffs of La Jolla. Uh, and so um, made the decision to go to UC San Diego and told my parents, I don't want to see you and I don't want a car and I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to have my college experience. And so um, ended up interning that very first year in college with a local politician and realized I did not want to go into politics, in fact. And so plans shifted pretty quickly after what that. So what was the biggest difference between what you thought versus when you were on the inside in that political context? Yeah, you know, I think honestly, it's it's the rose-colored glasses that, that you, I think a lot of leadership that's taught in high schools is very kind of, you know, rah-rah, like, you know, it, it is truly public service oriented in different ways. Um, and I was interning during one of the worst fires in San Diego's history. And the elected official with whom I was interning, his district was just getting hit so hard by the fires. And what I saw was more about positioning and how things looked in front of a camera than the people they were helping necessarily. And it left such a bad taste in my mouth that I, after one quarter of interning, I said, I'm just, I'm, I'm done. I, um, I have a pretty strong ethics bone in my body and I had a pretty visceral reaction to local politics. So I thought if I didn't have the stomach for that, then I, I probably shouldn't plan on my career being there. One thing stands out to me then as you pivoted away from politics, it looks like you pivoted towards work in sales, direct sales 
for the Southwestern company as a side hustle while you were in school. Tell me about that. And I commend you on the very specific outcomes that are uh, on your LinkedIn profile. So what were some of the memories with the Southwestern company? Oh, uh, wow. So uh, what an incredible experience and what a gift on my resume to be able to talk through that. So um, yeah, after, after a failed um, micro internship in, in uh, politics, I didn't know what I was going to do with my summer, but I knew I needed to do something that was going to give me business kind of experience. And so um, I took a job that was 100% commission during the summer. Um, you make your hours, you eat what you kill, like that's, you take orders, you're, you're the beginning and end, the alpha and omega of your business um, connected with Southwestern. And so for 10 weeks, uh, for 80 hours a week, I treaded door to door through Allentown, Pennsylvania, um, which is economically, you know, not, um, there, there are wealthier zip codes in the country. And I learned the value of um, kind of wearing out my shoes and just hard work. And at the end of that summer, after those 800 hours of work, I emerged with a check of $2,000. And I was just Yeah, but you got to leave San Diego for the summer and spend it in Allentown, Lucky. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So, so look, we have the common thread among our 80 plus guests we've hosted so far. We hear time and again, I started out in the call center. I started out in the call center. I started in the call center. Sometimes we get stories of getting hung up on in the call center. Other times we hear great stories with call center. But there's something different about a door being slammed in your face. Any early uh, thickening of the skin memories stand out or on the positive, any wins that helped led to that $2,000 commission check? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah, so I'll, I'll try and loop a couple of stories together. So <laughs> there was one day where I was just totally down in the dumps and, uh, you know, you knock on so many doors. What, what and- are you selling, by the way? Like, give me... I'm Brent, knock on my door, give me your old oh, elevator gosh. pitch. What was the rough product that we're talking about here? Yeah, yeah. So my name's Brandon. I'm the one that's been talking to all the families in the neighborhood about um, those study guides for all the school subjects for the kids. Um, the ones that help from the little guys all the way up to the big guys. Um, I'm sure you've heard about me. Have you heard about me yet? And often, oh, you oh know, yeah, they've they've been, we've, our whole neighborhood's talking about you, Brandon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, I'm so excited to show you what I have. I can take a seat right here and just show you, um, or we could take a seat inside where it's a little bit cooler. And I'm happy to walk you through why this, uh, why this set of resources is changing the lives of families in the neighborhood. So yeah. Come on I, uh, in, come on yeah. in. Boom. still got it. Um, so I was walking up to a door after a long day and all of the sudden a bird flies full speed into a glass window and just knocked itself out. And it was one of those moments that's so jarring that you're like, what just happened? I'm definitely the only one that just saw this, but life could always be worse. I could be ramming my head into a glass window. Like, okay, we're, we're going to keep going. And so um, anyway, there was just a lot of little moments throughout the day that were like, you learn to take solace in, in odd things. But I, 
appreciated a story that was shared with us as we were going through kind of the sales school experience in there was this great story about um, an optimist and a pessimist and the, um, they, they were twins and a psychologist was working with them, put them in two separate rooms because the parents had such extreme opposites as twins. And they put the, um, the, uh, the pessimist in a room full of toys, amazing things, everything a kid could want. And they put the, um, they put the past there. So they put the pessimist in the toy room they put the optimist in a room full of manure. That's all that was in it. And he said, we're really gonna get to the bottom of what's going on here. And so they go and they check on the pessimist and he's sitting in the middle of the room, arms crossed. And the psychologist said, what's wrong? Why didn't you play with the rocking horse? Well, I was gonna fall off and break my arm or why weren't you playing with the Xbox? Well, I, you know, I don't wanna hurt my fingers. I don't wanna, right? And so they said, okay, well, let's go check on, you know, on, on your sibling and see how they're doing in the other room. And they walk into the room with the pessimist in the manure, and the pessimist is up to their chest. Optimist in, in the manure. In, optimist, right? The optimist, sorry, yes. Yep. The optimist is up to his chest in manure. Manure's on the ceiling, it's all over. They're like, what are you doing? And the optimist said, with all this manure, there's gotta be a pony in here. Right? And so that's so the this the was part of their like their training uh to, to just frame things? Yeah, yeah, so the, the oh, framing there good. is uh, go find your pony, right? You're gonna tread through a lot of junk. You're gonna have a lot of days where it feels like there's just manure, find your pony. And so, yeah. I'll find I your kept, pony. I, I kept repeating that phrase to myself during the summer and lo and behold, I knock on a door and a lady was like, I'll take everything, give me everything. Um, and so the sales sheet was like one of everything. And it was, it, you know, they call it dumping your bag. Like I found my pony. And so the second summer after going through a full summer where I earned $2,000 the whole summer, I came back and did 10 X that in a summer. So I walked with a $12,000 check after a full summer. So it, again, the value of like lessons now you're learned. talking real money for a summer side hustle. For a college job? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's one of those things where you learn the value of lessons. You know, what you don't get in cash, you can get in tokens that you can cash in later. And I think it's just a matter of being persistent in your career and in what you do to realize like, it. you know, you never know what the end game is, but you have to do it with, you know, all of yourself and be open to the lessons you're going to learn along the way. So I'm so grateful for having those summers where um, <laughs> lots of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches sitting in the car. Uh, but it was, it was a great experience. Thank you for sharing that, Brandon. Like I said, we've known each other for a long time, but you just don't often get all the way down to some of those formative experiences and um, lots to, lots to, think about there, but anybody who's listening and feeling a little bit beaten down about, you know, sending that appeal or getting out, uh, you know, your proposals in time, uh, you could be doing what Brandon was doing his sophomore year of college. So uh, I think selling the mission of uh, higher ed to folks who benefited from it is probably a, I don't know, easier sell, let's say. <laughs> I agree. So you, uh, did that for, I think, three years of, of your college experience, graduated. Where were you leaning or when you were thinking about different career paths, recognizing that it was probably 
you know, just sort of either on the cusp of or in the midst of the uh, the financial crisis that, um, you know, that we were sort of, um, well, maybe a really good economic time coming right out of college and then not so good shortly thereafter. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, really good in 2006 when I graduated college. And so jumped uh, into the field of fundraising, definitely realized that I could sell, um, but that I, I really at my core was mission driven. And I had to find something that I really was passionate about and believed in. And um, I got really involved with InterVarsity, a Christian organization on a bunch of college campuses. And um, so decided to go on staff with them where I was going to raise all of my support, raise the program support uh, for engaging with college students. And, um, and uh, so had to work my own network, which was not, A, it was not easy, um, it, but it, it, because when you're selling door to door, you don't know who's behind the door. When you're writing an appeal to an alum, the, you may or may not have a personal relationship with them. When it's your own network that you're working, it's a whole different um, tension and reality. And so for three so years- You went I, from being like the completely random guy working neighborhoods in Allentown where you'd probably never been yeah. to fundraising in the most local direct friendships, frankly, that you were, that you were maintaining. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, I, um, while, and I think I found that hard, like as a fundraiser to like, and I, you know, I, the, the self-speak that was in my head. So what's interesting is when I was selling books, part of the reason I performed better is because I was managing people that second year in addition to selling. And when I didn't have to think about myself, um, it was so much easier to raise money. And I think I always struggled when I was with university and like, feeling like I'm raising my own salary, right? And if I don't raise my own salary, right, I'm not going to, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to do this. And that kind of pressure just wasn't like as a professional, for whatever reason, the way I'm built, it was just harder for me, harder for me to raise that money that way. And so um, I uh, found myself um, really understanding my own, my own limitations in a lot of ways. And so by the time the financial crisis hit in 2008 um, or 2009, it was like, I, I need to transition. And there was this opportunity to combine a bunch of the experiences that I had by joining the team at UCSD in the alumni association, because they were transitioning back in 2009 uh, from a dues paying alumni membership organization to one that was kind of all inclusive, but really embraced the role of philanthropy in the in the world of alumni relations, which at that point in time was a pretty rare thing for a public institution to be doing. And so um, I got to be the one that stepped into a role and flipped the switch. And what I found was, again, when the fundraising was about a, a something much bigger than myself and 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 I was able to focus, on a lot of things outside, as opposed to kind of raising raising support for myself, um, I just was able to lean into that and and apply a whole different kind of framework and thinking than I applied before. But um, that transition was it really in part because of the economic crisis that that we were in at that point in time. And you had a really strong run there, um, recognizing that you held a variety of of roles that it seemed like straddled alumni engagement, but leaning more towards philanthropy as you just shared, was that 
uh, was the institution ready for it? Was there support or was that sort of a, a culture change that y'all had to move through? Yeah, I mean, I, so credit to Armin Asahi, who I, I was so fortunate to come in and immediately be working under him. It was a series of really unfortunate and challenging circumstances with the personal lives of some staff members there. But as an assistant director, I was reporting up to the associate vice chancellor and so in Armin, anyone that knows him, he's an innovator. He loves pushing the edges of anything traditional. And, um, and so he led a very innovative organization. And I followed that energy all the way through my time at UC San Diego, where it went, it, there's a fairly logical chain in terms of the progression there. But it went from dabbling in membership and changing the way we thought about membership to understanding members better and understanding our alumni better and leading an outreach initiative that looked like a, a, a highly intensive um, kind of regional program, uh, a leadership annual giving regional program. Um, and then from that, we realized in the midst of the emergence from the, the uh, financial crisis, that jobs mattered a lot to alums and that we had to play a more significant role. And so Armin really led conversations at the institutional level to bring career services and alumni together. And because I had the outreach team, I took over the employer engagement team who's outward facing in a very similar way as a lot of leadership annual giving officers. And so we turned a lot of the applied principles in leadership annual giving over to the, the employer engagement side and by the time I was kind of at the end of my time at UC San Diego, it was overseeing all of the, the employer facing side of career, plus all of the external outreach and engagement side of the alumni association and kind of navigating the waters between those two offices uh, together. And let's just lay it out for the listeners, because the traditional model that most folks might still be exposed to would be advancement over here, and maybe it's alumni relations or alumni association and fundraising. And somewhere on the fundraising org chart, you'd have a corporate relations person. And then somewhere in the alumni association, you've got a mentorship person or somebody that's focused on alumni career services. And then over here in a different building in a different part of campus, you have career services who's trying to largely focus on current students getting jobs. And generally, right, those aren't very integrated or very connected. What was that the before at, in the UC San Diego context? And then what did the after look like? And why did you and Armin and others become such advocates, not only at your institution, but I think really across the industry, you were in that early wave of folks that advocated for a consolidation that candidly required change, maybe it was threatening to certain folks, depending on, um, you know, the, the traditional um, structure and, and, and so forth. What was the before and after, and why did you become such an advocate? Yeah, I think your, your description of the before is definitely accurate, right? Separate functions, separate silos, separate um, accountabilities and dependencies. Um, when you look at uh, career services. So career services will fall either in student life or in the provost office. And when you think about the top three priorities for either of those offices, right, in student life, health, safety, um, community, like career is somewhere closer to the end of maybe the top 10. 
provost, right? You've got, you know, that, the whole academic side of that. You've got a whole lot of things that are competing for priority. In the world of alumni, um, the success and, and the gratitude that's built early on with your most recent graduates will have a long-term effect one direction or the other with their relationship with the institution. And so our ability as an advancement function, as an alumni function, to get that transition right, to get that support right, um, it has massive implications for us. And the fact is they're an alum the minute they walk onto the campus, they're just either, they're, they're a pre-alum, they're a student. Um, and if we think about our community in that way, it changes the way you think about programs and resources and that kind of thing. And so when we were working through kind of the integration, there's a lot of what's interesting, especially in the space in between student life and advancement is um, it's like English and Spanish. And sometimes you can be using the same words, but meaning totally different things. Not that that happens a lot in English and Spanish, but uh, different languages, right? we would be saying the same words and walk out of the room and say, I think we agreed on something and then nothing would happen at all. And so we have to develop a shared sense, not only of direction, not only of vision, but also a shared language around the work that was happening in career development um, and begin to understand. And I think this is one of the things that I've learned to appreciate more and more in my time in higher ed, that resources drive so many decisions, so many decisions in, in higher ed, um, but in advancement in student life, if you can solve a resource problem, you can often move things that seem unmovable. And so if you say that you can engage or deliver better services without adding cost, but simply with a realignment, it quickly starts to make the case that, you know, so for instance, what I mean by that, in the world of alumni, you have 100,000, 200,000, some campuses, 400,000 alums that have some kind of affinity with the institution. To bring that scale to work for the career aspirations of your students, instead of just relying on eight, 10, 20 career advisors to be doing that service, suddenly you've solved a scale issue. And I think, um, again, in, 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 in the before and after, it was really thinking about going from a resource constrained world to a, a resource limitless world in a lot of ways in that we could, we envisioned a, a way in which we could do career development without having a, a ceiling on us because our, we were limited by our own imagination and ability to harness the collective energy of our volunteers. And so that, that really shifted a lot of the thinking of the kind of um, uh, the kind of no mentality, no, we can't do that. We can't do that because we don't have this or because we don't have that. So that shift I think was the most significant in the after effect of, of bringing those functions together. I think it's worth noting that as you were assuming leadership and focused on some of this integration, the backdrop was also in a, a, a moment in time when social media platforms were really exploding and I bet when you started at UC San Diego, if you wanted to know where alumni worked, you might have somebody run a query in a database on information that was self-identified, probably totally out of date. Midway through, you could just go to LinkedIn and in two seconds realize 
The top employer of your alumni is Google, then Amazon, Qualcomm, Apple, et cetera. And this idea of self-reported information being publicly available, I still think we're early on in, in operationalizing some of that because forever in the advancement sector, we've had, you know, for privates, it's been the class reunion strategy. And then it was the regional strategy or our clubs and chapters strategy. Nobody's ever had a Google strategy. Right. Like what's UC San Diego's engagement with Google and right. how can that support our admission story? Because we can point to data around alumni outcomes that is far more relevant and, and accurate from a student internship perspective. How do we become a conduit so that folks that are interested in working at Google, by the way, how do we help Google's HR team that is looking for students like ours and then in doing so, how do we make sure that we're building relationships with executives or some of the, the, the more well-off folks at Google who could support us philanthropically? And like, I don't know if we're there yet. I'm still not sure if, if, if there are holistic corporate strategies, the same way we might think about a class or a region, but it seems like that was the direction you were heading. Yeah, absolutely. And I... Um... So what's interesting, the institutions that I've, I've worked at, um, you know, I, there are a lot of institutions in the country where there's kind of a rallying point, specifically around athletics, right, the performance of a particular team. Uh, but it, I would say at a, a large number of institutions, that isn't always a calling card. And so what you have is, you know, a graduate population of alums that are specifically connected to their particular college or school, and then a general undergrad population that has a particular set of memories and affinities, but to unite that whole force in a particular way can be a challenge. And when you begin to look at the corporate landscape, what's interesting with an example like Google is the reality is that alums from any institution could be in legal, HR, finance, tech, right? Like they could be software, they could, they could be all over the company. And the unifying thing is they're at the one company and they, because their sports team doesn't play on national TV or whatever, the conversation never comes up that, Hey, Oh, Brent went to Brown. I went to Brown. Like we have something in common. Right. And so even just to your point about like seeding the conversation on the inside, using the data to understand we've got folks at for us in town, DeVita. Um, we've got a hundred folks at DeVita. I bet they don't know each other. I bet we have someone that can activate that network on our behalf bring them together and just say, hey, there's a group of a hundred of us. Let's make a game of going to find everybody and just saying, hey, we're here and we're community together. Like it's, it's a re it's such a powerful, the corporate strategy is such a powerful mechanism for activating networks, when, especially when you don't have a mechanism to activate those networks in and of the institution itself. Totally. And I think that's where I wonder coming out of the pandemic where there's been universal adoption of tools like Zoom, which we're using to record this, or Teams, or whatever it may be, the friction around, right now, I'm looking at DU alumni, 97 self-identified who work at Google. It would be so easy to set up a Zoom conversation for all DU alumni at Google, irrespective of office or role or function or whatever, and maybe then it's a, it's a conversation with your chancellor 
about DU, Impact 2025, with this Google, like this double affinity, would that further create an incentive for people to show up? And then doing it via Zoom means you don't got to get the chancellor on a plane. And then which office do we go to? So I know we're kind of going all over the place here, but I do feel like this, this idea of managing a corporate relationship across that student to alumni life cycle in a way that's truly mutually beneficial, that gets Google better access to your talent, that gets your talent and students better access to Google while also being able to maybe wrap in philanthropic opportunities is, is something that still feels pretty wide open. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And um, it's interesting to think about how the lessons learned from the past two years, year and a half, can be applied to, to that kind of nimble kind of network activation. Um, I, uh, old habits are slow to die in the world of higher ed. And I, I think- Well, to, especially like, at a moment when it's like, okay, now, you know, knock on wood, we can start having events again. And so we're thinking about, you know, pivoting back to probably more in-person, especially for the experiences that we really miss, but also probably maintaining some of the digital experiences that were successful over the last year. And now here I am telling you, you should have a corporate, you know, strategy too. It's sort of like, okay, well, who's going to do that work? Where does that live? But I do think in the sort of org chart, you know, aligned model that you've been championing first at UC San Diego, I know you've done the same at DU, at least there's a chance. Yeah. Yep. And you're no, not going to do it for every company overnight. But could you test it for Lockheed Martin or could you test it for one of the key employers, um, you know, for, for your institution? And, and it sure feels like, I mean, I've even thought, you know, looking at alumni participation by class year, I get it. It's simple, but it sure is arbitrary. You know, what if we stacked up the Google, Amazon and Microsoft alumni right? And started being able to present corporate level giving summaries and maybe even got some challenges back and forth. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's wide open. I think um, it'll be interesting to see, especially with a lot of the kind of great resignation or whatever's going on right now with the workforce shift, um, where, where affinities will most be alive and activated Right. Um, I think as people have also uh, maybe invested in, in their personal lives and their the lives of their families, like how, how does that come into play as well? So I agree with you on the corporate friends, huge open, open opportunity for us to think about how it really evolves the network activation strategy. Let's just talk about the great resignation for a minute, where you sit sort of with that intersection of advancement in career services have you all seen an uplift or an, uh, an increase in alumni seeking support or seeking new opportunities? Did it feel like maybe your community had hunkered down during the pandemic, but they are now saying, okay, I want to know more about the DU services or who else can you connect me to? Or is it too early to say? It's still early. I think what, what we did see uh, both early on in the pandemic, and I, we still see it now, is that any content around mental health and well-being is, is consumed um, pretty rapidly. I think folks are still trying to make sense of 
life, of work, of, you know, the new world in which we live. And um, I, we see a lot of engagement on that side, anything we offer around mental health and well-being. Um, on the career side. Can I just ask, Brandon, because yeah. I know you're involved with Pequod and I know that you're, you've yep. got a strong uh, network. It, it seems like globally, certainly in the U.S., in all facets of life, even pre-pandemic, it seemed like mental health and wellness went from sort of this thing in the corners that sometimes would get talked about, but not really to it just being in the mainstream. And as we sit here in August, you know, this week, Simone Biles was navigating her own um, mental health issues relating to the Olympics. And it just seems so pervasive now. Has this come up on your um, professional circuit or within the alumni community of just, is this our, like, is this part of our job? You know, is it, is it, does it like, is this part of the role of an alumni organization in 2021 to speak to and develop programming, or frankly, is that not a lane we should be in? And I'm just curious how you all have navigated that or what you hear from your peers. Yeah, I would say particularly at DU. So we have a graduate school of professional psychology. We have a graduate school of social work. We have a college of education, right? Like we've got a lot of professionals that clinically are are working in the mental health space. You know, what we, the kinds of conversations we were having, especially in major metros, so New York, San Francisco, LA, like it was already coming up before the pandemic, right? That this, especially for young professionals that are dealing with, it's not just the stress of climbing the ladder and getting this great job and doing this kind of thing. It's the kind of, so our students would come from Colorado, which to its credit has so much to offer in the outdoors, you can you can year round go do whatever you want recreationally, and it does contribute to your well being. It does contribute to your mental health, and and then those same students who may have grown up in Chicago or wherever, then they move out to be professionals in these cities, and they long for that reconnection, and they attribute it to Colorado, like they contribute they attribute it to a space, but I think it was also a practice and a way of life that. Uh, provided an elevated sense of connection to nature, an elevated sense of, and a kind of balance that came with life. And so even before the pandemic, we were hearing that from a lot of our network leaders in those major metros that, hey, we would benefit from this. Can you bring some of those resources? And so, of course, right as we were preparing to, that's when COVID hit and, and, uh, and we're leaning into that now and learned, you know, to do that as we went through. But what I think COVID has brought forward is, that it's not just young professionals, it's parents that are trying to figure out like school and, you know, homeschooling or whatever. Um, It's, you know, professionals that are struggling with, do I go into work? Don't I go into work? So all of a sudden, I think it just opened the door for everybody to ask these questions. Like I'm, this is beyond logistically complicated. Like mentally, I'm having a hard time with this. And I do think there's going to be, I think there is a wave going on. Um, I think as we, just as much as we're learning to have conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion, I think we're learning how to have conversations about mental health and well-being and its role in the workplace. And I think, unfortunately, we're shortcutting so much of that with this conversation about 
well, is it remote where what's our remote work policy and that kind of thing. And I think the highest level question we should be asking is what is the value we hold for the mental health and well-being of our professionals? And do we believe that happy employees are going to be productive employees? Then the next question is how do we make sure they're accountable to producing in that way? And then what's the policy, right? But we're kind of shortcutting this conversation just to get back to work. And I think it could really, um, both in, the, in advancement, I think I see my PCOD colleagues, we're all having conversations about, you know, what's your remote work policy? What's this remote work policy? How are you navigating this? How are you doing events? Um, and I think we can miss this moment of just saying, we need to keep the highest values high. And we know that caring for, for mental health and well-being should be one of those high values. So I don't think we've made a ton of progress there. And I'm worried, honestly, we're going to fly past this moment and in a rush to kind of get back to normal. Right. Well, let's talk about that because given your role where you sit at the inter intersection of on one hand, not just at DU, but across the sector, um, tried and true practices of higher education, the importance of in-person residential learning in many cases. Um, but you're also a conduit to brands, employers that are rapidly adjusting their approach based on what you just said. First and foremost, how do we enable people to do their best work? And if more flexibility or more remote friendliness supports their best work, then we'd be crazy not to support it. Yet, as I've seen in anecdotal you know, survey work that I've done on LinkedIn, and as we hear from our peers in the sector, on one hand, higher education responsible for educating the talent of tomorrow. The talent of tomorrow is walking into organizations that all just shifted to remote for a year and in most cases are maintaining some aspect of that. But the educational institution itself is sort of either institutionally or de department-wise saying, let's get back to normal. And so how do you sort of reconcile that in a leadership conversation where um, you've kind of got to walk both sides in, in a certain regard? Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I think about what's interesting is when you step back and you think about pre-COVID. And, and also, can I just say, yeah, yeah. in the past, the friction for Evertrue, for example, to be a hiring partner with DU, well, we're in different time zones. Our office is in Boston. Most people are working in Boston. We are now in a fully remote context. There is zero friction for us to recruit your students. And we're not alone. We're a small, relatively small employer. But there are so many companies like that that in the, in the past would not have been core employer partners for a DU that I would argue absolutely could be or should be now. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think w when you look back pre-COVID, if I were to tell you that um, all of higher education is going to shift to online learning, um, you would assume something absolutely catastrophic happened and that that would be a lasting and enduring reality uh, for higher education. I think the reality though, is that what we, what we see and know and what we saw and knew even before COVID was that issues around mental health and well-being are, were the, among the highest. This is the most stressed out generation coming into, coming into college than any other before it. And I think there's something really important that happens within um, an in-person context in the growth and development, especially for 18 to 24 year olds when you're developing as, a, as, a, as your own person. And I think 
at DU, that's one of the things we're starting to wrestle with in the student experience is that it is not just about the life of the mind. We are not just feeding the intellect of our students, that we in our student experience and the evolution of our student experience, we need to aspire to be absolutely serving the well-being, the mental, social, emotional well-being, the spiritual well-being of our students. Um, we need to be aspiring to ensure that they're wrestling with issues of character and who they're becoming as a, as a young adult. Um, and then also in their career and professional life, how are we preparing them? And I think that that mix, that formula where education, if work is about producing a, a product or a service, there's something special that's happening in an in a in-person context that's hard to replicate, especially for that 18 to 24 year. I think when you talk about graduate education, it's a, it's a different dynamic and graduate education has successfully kind of been navigating the online space for, for a long time. But I do think there, there are questions to ask, not just because a degree is the product that comes out of an educational experience, but people come out of an educational experience and who are the people that are coming out and are employers getting students that are, you know, so you think about issues of character, Brent, when you're hiring students from DU, you want someone that you know is, is honest and ethical, definitely, um, is going to really be thoughtful and creative, but that they're going to, um, there's someone that you can trust. They've, they've gone through, they have grit, right? They've, they've, they know how to grind through uh, challenging situations and circumstances. And I think figuring out what are the environments, and I think that's a big question is like, I'm not saying it can only happen in person. I'm not saying it can only happen online, but I'm just saying there's some, there's a value that is beyond just like, did someone consume information and merge with the product called a degree, you know? And so um, how education responds in this moment to either see itself as more than that or see itself as something different than that is going to be wildly interesting. I love it. And, um, well said and can't wait to, to learn and go down that journey um, together for sure. Given your portfolio of work where um, you right now as Associate Vice Chancellor focused on global networks, your portfolio would include student engagement, alumni and friends by way of career and professional development, alumni engagement, advancement marketing and annual giving across schools and colleges. And so let's talk a little bit about maybe some of the impressions, misconceptions, realities in some cases where when you think about the alumni life cycle, the sort of journey after graduation. In the past, it would have been potentially, I did the work, I worked with career services, I did my internship, I got my job. Six months later, they called me and asked for money. That's not the experience you're hoping to create. I know that you're looking for a much more symbiotic experience where we wanna play a direct role make sure you understand and get some early education around philanthropy, but we still have to achieve our annual giving and other fundraising goals. And so how do you think about balancing giving and getting versus maybe it feeling more disconnected through the eyes of a recent graduate, let's say? 
Sure. And um, what what we saw um, early on at DU is, and I, I, if you look at the data nationally, this holds true, is that the participation rate of recent graduates is, is fairly poor, and it's also fairly indicative of where your participation rate is going to go in the future. It'll climb, but it'll climb, uh, you know, proportional to what those early days kind of look like. Um, and so the approach has been, well, then get them early, get them given early as quickly as we can, get them giving, get them in that rhythm and, and pattern. Um, I think that what we, when we surveyed and when we had conversations with our recent grads, what they would say is, you called me the day after my first um, student loan bill came due at six months, right? Like that is the worst calendaring that we have <laughs> in annual giving is don't wait six months. That's literally when they get their first bill. Um, instead, what we realized and what we, how we positioned our programming was that within a month, within three months, within six months of graduation, the first three phone calls a student's gonna get is a call from our career center saying, do you have a job? If you don't have a job, do you know that there are resources locally and then back on campus? So if you're in Chicago, if you're in New York, we've got alumni there, they can help you. Or there's this webinar coming up, we're gonna get you connected. So that the memories of those first couple phone calls are, you were there. And I think the taste, the sour taste in the mouths of young alums is often you, the first phone call I got was asking me for money. It wasn't, you were there to support my success. You were there to support my career. You help us, if a student can tie, if an alum can tie back their career and professional growth, success in any capacity to the, the help of the institution, that ask is not a hard ask to make, right? Just, hey, would you do the same for students that are coming up behind you? Um, and so I think we just we don't pay enough attention in those early days in that first year, especially to what is that experience like? What is the narrative that our alums are hearing? And then how do we invite them in is the only time, you know, to annual giving's credit, annual giving often is the only time alums hear from us. We do a much better job at keeping up with development data than we do with engagement data. I know often they live in the same database, but we're much quicker to act on good data on the annual giving side than we are on the engagement side. Not shame on engagement. We should be better. Um, but so between the consistency of communication and that first year experience, I think there's a huge opportunity to think about um, how we evolve our thinking around alumni participation specifically, which has been in a precipitous decline for two decades. And you know, look, in a certain regard, this is just common sense. It's golden rule. I mean, in our in our major gift work, we do not walk in and make the ask immediately, right? You you earn the opportunity to get to a point to make an ask. And I think unfortunately, just the way annual giving has worked is it has been more transactional. And so the worst case scenario is you call the person six months after they graduate, they just got the student loan bill, they don't have a job yet. And as the student caller, I say, good luck. Yeah. I mean, that's the worst when you have so many ways that the institution could support that part of the life cycle. And it sounds like leading with how are you doing, right? Recognizing that we can then gather data, develop additional segments and earn the opportunity to make a solicitation um, is just gonna improve the experience and, and probably the odds of success. And I know one of your favorite memories, um, having worked on a planned GIF 
gift connected to a community commons um, project did tie back to some of those formative experiences. And I'd love to just learn more about that and then think about how do we scale that goodwill much earlier in more alumni journeys? Yeah. Yeah. That um, I had the opportunity um, in stepping in as interim vice chancellor um, to oversee the whole advancement enterprise. And one of the conversations that I was having, I was having a conversation with um, an individual, an alum uh, about, um, you know, his stories, right? It, always starting with, you know, what's your story? What's your connection to this place? What's your favorite memory? Uh, you know, I think a lot of good major gift officers ask those questions. Um, and at the end of that conversation, there was a kind of a throwaway comment that, you know, I've been thinking a lot about my legacy and um, I, I really should have that conversation. Um, and I said, let's have that, con let's have lunch. Let's talk about what that looks like. And it was such a natural, like, because we started with this story, because we started with, you know, his memories of, of the campus, um, over lunch, we started talking about um, more of those memories and going a little bit deeper. And, um, you know, it was not a, a far stretch once you kind of got down to it to say, you know, what does legacy mean to you? What does that look like? And, and how could that manifest itself on the campus to a place that's clearly meant so much to you and your life? Um, and so it was, it was, it was, you know, I think sometimes there are some gifts that are absolutely kind of harder to walk through. It feels a little bit clunky. It was, but this one was such a natural conversation because someone was already thinking about what do I want to leave behind? How do I want to make my mark on a place that's left a mark on me? And that, that was coming from a sincere place. And I, I think, you know, that's not something, no matter how many programs you run, that's like, that is years and decades of him remaining engaged with the place and just having opportunity after opportunity. And I think, um, you know, uh, there's a huge value of engagement professionals in institutions to play a role in major gifts and principal gifts, because often, and no offense to any of my development colleagues, but the data will show often the engagement folks are around a lot longer. They know a lot, they have a lot more institutional memory and they have, they have some relational memory. And I think a lot of the very successful development officers are ones that have been at institutions for long enough to build some of these relationships. Some of the biggest gifts take a decade, right, to, to develop. And so I think that's the other side of the coin is um, being a trusted kind of representative of the institution and knowing it well enough to be able to authentically represent enthusiasm for that story. Um, so, I, you know, there's no formula, but I do, I do think those stories matter and being able to kind of just lightly bridge those stories to transformational opportunities for the institution is that's been one of my favorite experiences. Love it. Tell me a little bit about your own approach to building your professional network within the industry. May, 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 we've mentioned Pequot a couple of times. I'm sure some of our guests know it well, or listeners know it well. Some probably have never heard of it. So tell me about Pequod. You've mentioned Armin, other folks that you look to as mentors or peers um, in the sector. Absolutely. So um, Pequod stands for private colleges and universities alumni directors. So it's the head of alumni offices from 40, now 47 private institutions. Um, I've been a part of it for uh, almost six years, ever since I've been at the University of Denver. 
um, and have been fortunate to serve as membership chair, um, really helping the organization think about its, its membership and its membership strategy. Um, it's a community where it, it's, it's, it's been an amazing community for a lot of reasons. Number one, just quality people, like amazing, amazing people. But number two, um, often at my institution, all of our trustees, their alma mater is one of the Pequod schools. And so I can call up, you know, Howard Wolf over at Stanford, or, you know, I can, you know, I can call up a, a Sterley over at Duke and just say, hey, one of the trustees mentioned this, can you tell me the story behind what Stanford did here, what Duke did here? And that ability to kind of quickly get to the kernels of truth in, in um, what someone was really enthused about is so helpful. Um, but just, a, you know, as a community of practice and also a, a a community of therapy um, and just knowing like what you experience is not crazy um, is helpful. I have uh, engaged a lot with Case and been um, chairing, I chaired the Alumni Engagement Strategies Conference for a few years and then was fortunate enough to get invited and officially joined in July, uh, just this past month, uh, the Case Commission on Alumni Relations. And so I know JT Forbes has been really engaged there and JT is someone that I so respect. And so I, you know, I always have my eye out for people that really for a decade or more have built a reputation of being a respected leader in a space. JT has such a strategic mind. Armin is such an innovator, right? And I can go through every one of my Pequod colleagues. And I think I can pick a couple of things about each one of them that I just, I want to emulate my career. And I found that it keeps me going in the times that are hard and the times that are good like just being inspired by your peers that are doing new and different things. And at the end of the day, they're not your competitor. Like in a lot of, apart from case awards, they're not your competitor in any way. And so being able to share together as a community of practice um, is also one of the really cool and unique things about our industry. Really well said. Do you have any plans to, hit the road or, or reconnect with any of those folks or, or too early to say at this point? I'm, we're bringing them all here to Denver in January. Um, Pequod, we're hosting the Pequod conference here on campus at DU, um, you know, barring whatever situation that could emerge here. Um, but uh, looking forward to connecting with, with a lot of those folks and then um, meeting a lot of new folks as well. We recently, one of the things that's been important to me is that as all of our institutions become um, grow in our understanding and our practice of diversity, equity, inclusion, that we we as Pequod wanted to really grow and evolve and, and involve a lot more community that reflected the diversity. And so um, we were able to add four schools to Pequod. Um, Northwestern was one of them, but then Howard, Morehouse, and Spelman all joined Pequod. And I've already learned a lot from those colleagues and um, am looking forward to learning so much more. But I think as a field, um, we've, we've got a lot of growing to do in, in that space. And I'm, I'm looking forward to a lot, a lot of new lessons learned and new connections with colleagues as well. Well, I wish you the best as you plan for that January gathering. I'm sure, um, you know, twisting people's arms to come to Colorado in January. I think you'll be, I think you'll be uh, all right as, as uh Hopefully folks can um, make some long weekends out of it as well and hit the slopes. But um, I, I just, the time has flown by, Brandon. I got to give you a chance 
If there is a plug for opportunities at DU, um, are you hiring at this point? Uh, and then also what's the best way for um, our listeners to get in touch with you? Sure. Um, so yes, I do have a couple positions open. We are getting ready for a campaign. And so there's a lot of really great opportunities coming, not only on the development side, but um, have an opening for leading our career development effort, kind of an integrated alumni career uh, role that's an assistant vice chancellor role. And also looking for a stellar marketing um, director of our next campaign um, and really uh, looking for creative minds to come in there. So um, email me brandon.busby at du.edu um, and would, would love to, or connect with me on LinkedIn. Would love to, always love connecting with, with colleagues in the advancement field. All right, Brandon, we've got a wrap, but I hope we can all go out and find some ponies uh, as we reflect on Brandon's uh, career and just can't thank you enough. You're always such a positive, enthusiastic uh, leader uh, and friend to so many. So thank you for sharing your perspective and career path with our audience today. Thank you, Brent. Really appreciate the opportunity. Brent, signing off from Iowa. Going to go look for some horses out there. Take care. Mm -hmm.